Good morning, Algiers. Good afternoon, Baku, and good evening, Osaka. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss NATO's newest member and the indictment of a former American president. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Doing well, Ethan. And you? How was your weekend? John, there's no time to talk about the weekend because we've got to start today with by far the biggest news of the day. Perhaps some of the biggest news of the past few years that it's been plastered all across the front pages of every newspaper in America and around the world. And some people are saying it's long overdue. So, John, take it away. Yeah, well, this is obviously... The story uh, that last Thursday, Finland's bid to join NATO cleared its final hurdle by getting approval from Turkey's parliament, which uh, had been holding up that process since last May. Big news for NATO, obviously. Finland has by far the largest border with Russia and uh, over 1,300 kilometers of border actually with Russia. So, you know, huge up there in the north. Um, And that means that NATO's border with Russia has now doubled or more than doubled, actually, uh, which I suppose defense officials say will be a big deterrent to future Russian aggression Uh, Not least because Finland has a pretty disproportionately powerful military considering the size of the country. So big news. All right. This is not the story I was expecting, but okay. (laughs) A few questions come out of that. First of all, uh, John, why was Turkey holding Finland's bid hostage for so long? Well, the simple answer to that is that NATO requires unanimous consent from uh, all the existing members for a new member to be able to join. Uh, And the reason Turkey was so slow in giving its consent is that it says that Finland is harboring or was harboring Kurdish terrorists. Now, those accusations are probably uh, unfounded, but it's certainly true that there are Kurds living in Finland, some of who are politically active on, on the left of Finnish politics. So in exchange for Turkish approval, Finland agreed to crack down or at least, you know, more more closely monitor the activities of some of those groups. Um, and, and I guess here's the important thing to note is that Finland submitted its application at the same time as Sweden. Uh, and they asked that the, they, they, uh, their bids be considered jointly by NATO and by Turkey. But basically, Turkey has decided not to allow Sweden in for the same Kurdish issue, um, but allow Finland in. So they had to separate their, their bids essentially and unjoin them, if if you will. Um, and I guess the reason that, that Turkey hasn't let Sweden in is because apparently Sweden hasn't let uh, or hasn't gone to the same lengths to appease Turkey on this Kurdish issue. Um, so Sweden's still waiting. And I, I think overall, the important takeaway here is it's a real demonstration of Turkey's geopolitical influence. It's essentially managed to turn a domestic political question in Turkey, i.e. the Kurds, uh, into an international issue. And I think that's a pretty clear sign of, of geopolitical power. Okay, and next question. Uh, why did Finland want to join NATO in the first place? I mean, you said 1,300 kilometers. That sounds like a lot of territory to cover against a potentially, or at, le- at least now, a-, a hostile power. Yeah, I mean, so 1,300 kilometers in your speak is what? About 1,000 miles? It's no, a long way, it's, right? it's like 830. Okay, there you go. I, I can't do that. Which is a, a, about how much I run in a given week. Oh wow! There you go. So you run, you run the Finnish border. Impressive. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think more seriously, most folks have heard of Article Five of NATO. That's the collective defense clause in NATO. The idea that uh, an attack on one NATO member is tr- is treated as an attack on all NATO members, um, and you know the US, the UK, France, Germany are all members of NATO, so it's a big deal. Um, but beyond that, there's a there's a 
a fascinating and important historical context here to Finland and Russia's relationship. Um, Finland has approached its relationship with Russia by being very carefully neutral ever since the Soviet Union invaded Finland at the very start of World War II in, in what has become known as the Winter War. In that war, the Finns surprised the Russians by fighting far more fiercely than expected, which, I don't know, ring any bells. Um, but they ended up ceding 11% of their sovereign territory to Russia as sort of like a, a an olive branch to avoid complete annexation. Uh, obviously, the Soviet Union was much more powerful than, than Finland at the time. Since then, Finland has tried to balance its ge uh, geopolitical goals of becoming closer to the West, culturally and, and politically, while being careful not to provoke the Russians on their border. Became known as the Winter War. I, I feel like that'd be something that you could name kind of on the spot. It's not like World War II. <laughs> Right. Or, you know, World War in the middle I. of winter in the Arctic. If it's winter, it's winter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, you're saying that they tried not to provoke the Russians. This seems pretty provocative, joining NATO. Yeah, I, I guess it is. And I suppose that's what makes it so significant. Finland's breaking decades of policy in a very public way, and Russia can't do much to stop them. Even though I think Russia's Swedish ambassador said Finland and Sweden were now legitimate targets if they join NATO or once they join NATO. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to watch the Russian reaction, uh, by which I mean not just that kind of bellicose rhetoric from mid-ranking officials trying to get promotions, but more from like Russian state media and, and internally. So far from what I've seen, that reaction's been pretty mild, pretty muted, uh, which is probably a pretty good indication that the Kremlin would prefer not to draw, to, uh, draw attention to Finland joining NATO, uh, because it kind of demonstrates how powerless Russia is to stop a country on its border doing something that it has long said was, you know, essentially a red line. I mean, that's an absolute disaster for, from the Kremlin's point of view, right? To, you know, we can keep, keep talking about the length of this border, but it's as much Finland's border as it is Russia's. Right. I mean, it is a disaster. If Russia's, if Russia's stated aim of invading Ukraine was to stop the expansion of NATO, and let me be very clear here, I don't, that's what Russia has said was its aim. I personally think the invasion of Ukraine was far more about some sort of, you know, neo-colonial obsession on behalf of a... A few, a few folks in the Kremlin. But, um, you know, if Russia was genuinely worried about NATO expansion and now Finland is in NATO, well, uh, the strategic geniuses in the Kremlin have, have really shot themselves in the foot, haven't they? Today's show is sponsored by Roka. We really like newsletters, and we've got another recommendation that you've got to check out, The Current by Roka News. Here's what we like about it. It was founded by people who don't like the negative, partisan, and alarmist style of news. It favors facts over opinions, and it tells you what you need to know for the day so you can hold your own at happy hour. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So finally, I think you're done uh, with that story. So let's move on to the next story. And I'm very glad that I am not the one uh, that has to do most of the talking on this one. So uh, let's start walking you across that minefield, John. What do you say? So what happened late on Thursday to former President Trump? You're a cruel man, Ethan. You tried to get me to talk about it earlier and I avoided you, but uh, I guess there's no avoiding it now. Um, you know I don't like talking about former President Trump. It's so often noise and so rarely news. Um, and uh, look, 
I don't want to get. I genuinely don't want to get into the weeds on on what actually happened. But if anyone has been living under a rock over the last weekend, firstly, lucky you. But secondly, this is the story that uh, former President Trump was indicted by the district attorney's office in Manhattan, uh, and he'll be arraigned on Tuesday. But it comes after weeks of speculation from the media and from Trump himself. Uh, that he would be arrested. But despite that, there are still reports that it took uh, the former president and his team a little by surprise late last week. Yeah, John, I think you're right to avoid getting into the weeds on this for a lot of reasons, but but mostly because the, the legal aspect of this is pretty convoluted and, and difficult for, I think, even both of us to understand, uh, even a lot of legal experts to understand. So we'll stick an article uh, from... Uh, the legal slash national security blog lawfare in the show notes for anyone that wants to read a little bit more about it. But with that said, why does this matter? And, and does it actually matter? Well, I mean, it is the first time in American history that a U.S. president, current or former, uh, has been indicted on criminal charges. So it's definitely news and not just the normal sort of like, oh, look, a squirrel kind of game that Donald Trump is uh, so masterful at playing with the media. Um but there's a reason we don't typically wade into domestic politics and, and U.S. domestic politics particularly. Uh, it's because, um, you know, there's not much to be said that hasn't already been said. But I think this does matter because it demonstrates, at least to some people, that the U.S., in the U.S., no one is above the law. You know, whether he'll be convicted is a totally different matter. But in some senses, that's not really the point, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right on that. I mean, but... Let's let's move on from this because I think both of us feel tense. I can I can see it in your eyes. So let's go to something more comfortable. Uh, <laughs> what might this uh, indictment? What what might the effect be on U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, well, it's, it's hard to say. Um, but former President Trump was, you know, he was really the architect of this American first isolationist foreign and trade policy that the U.S. has had for a few years now. Um, he was the first U.S. senior figure to really take the gloves off in the fight against China. You know, he suggested that NATO was redundant, um, looked to play nicer with Russia and the Saudis and, and so on. Um, but a lot of those America first vibes have, have stuck. Many of the things Trump was f- a, a, really a first mover on. Um, when it comes to populism in U.S. foreign policy, that they're now pretty bipartisan in Washington at the moment. So if you asked, you know, I mean, you did ask, <laughs> you asked if uh, uh, whether his indictment will affect U.S. foreign policy, I would speculate, you know, it's speculation, but if the indictment sort of sinks his support um, in the lead up to the election next year so much that his positions become toxic. You might see the Republican Party shift away from some of the things they've been toying with recently, like stopping the funding for Ukraine and, and refusing to join free trade agreements and so on. That's a huge if, of course. On the other hand, if he manages to navigate the charges and, and win the Republican nomination, uh, you'd have to think that we're going to get a souped up version of that American first policy, right? And then after that, a deep unpredictability about whether he'll go on to undo some of the Biden era policies, you know, like semiconductor, a ban on semiconductor transfers to China and, and so on. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation there, but there are some potential foreign policy uh, ramifications. Well, while we're on the, the topic of, of speculating, uh, Trump, obviously the front runner in the Republican race for the presidency right now. So I have to ask, I mean, do you think this indictment will help or hurt Trump's chances to make it back to the White House? Come on, don't ask me that. I uh, turn on cable TV here if you want clownish punditry. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, well, let me ask it a different way because I'm going to get this answer out of you one way or another. Uh, what's happened when other heads of state have been prosecuted? 
Okay, that that I can tell you. I think the first thing to be aware of is that it's not hugely rare. Uh, in the past fifteen years, two French, two South Korean lead, and two South Korean leaders have been convicted on corruption charges. There's a former Italian prime minister. Uh, who was convicted too, um, and there dozens more from around the world. And obviously, we covered it last week, but Benjamin Netanyahu uh, in Israel uh, is facing corruption charges right now as well, which has kicked off some domestic protests and, and troubles there. So, you know, I think the outcomes have all been very different. Nicolas Sarkozy of France had his political career mostly ground to a halt. Um, but on the other hand, the mercurial Silvio Berlusconi in Italy uh, you know, <laughs> is still going. He's still a fairly influential figure in Italy's uh, current government, despite being very controversial. Um, and and in Brazil, former President Lula da Silva was convicted on corruption, of course, and he spent actually spent time in jail, uh, had his case thrown out, and now he's back to being president again. So I guess what I'm saying is it's basically impossible to predict. Maybe it'll give Trump a, a political boost. Maybe it won't. I, I don't think we know. I do think it sends an oddly positive message, though, to to the rest of the world um, that, as I said earlier, that that in the US, no one is above the law. Um, now, obviously, I don't think any US diplomat is going to be going on the record commenting that uh, commenting on this situation, you know, which is essentially a domestic political situation. But socially and privately, and I think in back channels, it's a fairly persuasive argument to be able to say to you know, other countries that, look, our democracy isn't perfect. The US makes lots of mistakes, but no one, not even a powerful former president is above the law. I think that's a persuasive thing to be able to say. But you know, failing all of that, uh, we will probably be getting a Trump mugshot in a few days. Um, and I think if there's any definition of living through history, that might be it. Well, I think everyone, of uh, regardless of political persuasion, can look forward to that. So thanks, John. Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Authorities in Tunisia introduced a water quota on Friday as the country suffers its fourth straight year of drought. Experts predict Tunisia's grain harvest will decline by two-thirds this year, since potable water can't be used for agriculture until September 30th. Speaking of Finland, the country held its general election on Sunday, the results of which came back shortly after we finished recording, and sitting Prime Minister Sana Marin's party looks to have been defeated by the Conservative National Coalition Party. The far-right and Eurosceptical Finns party came in second. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, you may have heard that former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro flew home from his self-imposed exile in Florida, but you may not have heard about the plane that he was flying in. Seriously, you got to check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what it was. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday. <laughs>